Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. Between the supply chain challenges and product shortages that marked the beginning of the pandemic and rising food prices due to inflation continuing to push some products out of consumers' financial reach, many Americans are being forced to try new brands, creating opportunities and challenges for companies vying for their dollars and long-term loyalty. According to research published last week by FMI, the Food Industry Association, 61% of U.S. shoppers are concerned about rising food prices, which according to the most recent Consumer Price Index published October 13th, were up 13% for food consumed at home in September over the previous year. Of these consumers, FMI found 30% are changing the brands that they buy, up 5 percentage points from August, and 44% are buying more in-store brands, up 3 percentage points from August. Unlikely to slow or reverse anytime soon, with increased expenses of the holidays upon us and the threat of a recession and layoffs on the horizon, brands and retailers across the industry are scrambling to attract and retain consumers, prompting some players to re-engage their advertising, marketing, and promotional efforts that they pulled back on early in the pandemic, while others are exploring more dramatic rebrands to appeal to new consumer priorities and shopping habits that emerged in the past three years. But given many companies are under the same financial pressures as consumers, Jason Beyer, a marketing manager at CrowdSpring, says their efforts must be concentrated, cost-effective, and uniquely compelling in order to be effective. To do this, he explains in this episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Net podcast that businesses must first identify or re-identify their core consumer, who may be different now than pre-pandemic, and then ensure that their branding clearly targets and connects with them at each phase of the shopping experience, from discovery through unboxing to use. He also explores how companies can recession-proof their businesses by using personalized marketing at scale to drive loyalty, and when and how to expand or contract their portfolio to withstand turbulent market phases, such as a downturn. So the chaos of the past few years has created a unique opportunity for consumers and brands that may not have previously connected, which might inspire some companies to go all in to attract new shoppers. But Bayer says they need to be strategic in who they pursue in order to avoid quote-unquote waste at a time when margins are tight and the economy is unpredictable. What pandemics and recessions do is they break our habits. And so before, whereas, you know, we might have only shopped with one brand and it might have been one of the larger brands, there's opportunities for uh, for, for newer brands to come in and, and challenge that space. But certainly when you talk about pandemics and recessions, how you want to tighten up uh, those budgets and the marketing and, and who you're talking with, uh, it really comes down to knowing who exactly your customer is, right? This is what's called positioning. Who are you speaking to? And, and almost the more important question is who are you not speaking to? Who are not your customers? Because as business owners and, and people running a business, we, we start to think that everybody needs our product, right, that it will solve everyone's problem. And those are not great brands to start off with because now you're just competing with everyone, right? And the much better approach is to say, okay, who is my brand not for? Who do I not want to target? 
it's not that you're going to refuse service to them. It's just unlikely that they're going to find your product appealing. And so what you want to do is say, okay, who is my audience? Who is not my audience? And then where can I find that current audience, right? Because we, we want to get as specific as possible in who this group is so that we can work directly with them, right? So you think about certain maybe kind of polarizing brands, you know, something like Black Rifle Coffee Company. They're not trying to be Folgers. They're not trying to be a coffee company for everyone. They're going after a very specific niche. You know, they know the gender. They know what their hobbies are. Uh, and, and so they can advertise in specific, you know, magazines or email newsletters or podcasts to a specific demographic, certain areas of the country. And they're going to be, they're going to turn off other people, but those are not their customers. And you can build a very nice business with this. And you take a lot of stress off yourself because you know who you're trying to target and you're ignoring the people that you're, you're not trying to target. So that our waste is only happening within the confines of this audience and not targeting somebody who is not even interested in our product. Um, I think that's one of the easiest ways to understand, you know, how to, how to save money. Buyer acknowledges that narrowing who a brand or product targets may sound counterintuitive to some businesses, especially new ones that want to build up their base and sell as much product as possible. But he explains a strategic way to reach more shoppers and potentially help recession-proof the company is to expand its portfolio so that individual brands or products remain tailored for a certain consumer segment, and each of those segments are distinct enough so as to broaden the company's overall reach. Look at what the large uh, CPG companies do. They acquire other brands, or you could start another brand, right? So if you perfect, to use that coffee example, if you perfect the ability to source coffee, package coffee, deliver coffee, and have a, a strong uh, response that, that people like this product and like your service, there's nothing precluding you, and you're at a, an advantage to create another coffee brand, right, potentially targeting, you know, the customers that were, were not your, 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 in your prior uh, group. And so, you know, you got to think a little bit broader as your skill set as a business owner is, is not just growing your singular brand, to be as large as it can be. But what could a portfolio of brands look like using your skill set uh, that, that you've honed in on a very specific niche? Because I think one of, the, one of the challenges that people face is I, I don't want to, you know, a variety of ways of saying this, right? I don't want to pigeonhole myself into one category. I don't want to limit my ability to expand. Uh, I want to be able to reach a larger group. But it's much easier to have a conversation with a very specific person than to say we target an entire generation of people, you know, millions of people, millennials, just millions of people born within a specific time frame. There's a lot of differences within that group. And so it's helpful to start off and to say, okay, we target millennials, but it's lazy to stop right there. You've got to push deeper. And this is where you start having conversations with folks. You start understanding, you know, what are the common characteristics of millennials? And then what are the characteristics that you're looking for within that specific group, right? And so a, a lot of times this is revealed through conversations. When we talk about building a brand, it's we're guiding the conversation around what our brand is, 
but we're doing that in the context of getting feedback. We're learning from our customers and our prospects how they think of us, right? And so this is obviously a brand that, that has been running for a little bit, uh, maybe targeting a broader group, but they're trying to understand how they can narrow this down a little bit. Talk to your suppliers. What do they like about you? Talk to your customers and your prospects. What do they uh, enjoy about your product or service? And then start to ask questions to understand, you know, hobbies, things that they do, things that, that connect them. And you start to paint this picture of who your current audience is so that you can uh, go after them a little bit more aggressively in your marketing. He cautions, however, adding new brands should only happen after either perfecting the first one or learning from its shortcomings. It comes down to, one, making sure that, you know, what, why are you choosing to expand uh, the portfolio? Have you maxed out your current uh, opportunity with this brand, right? Uh, do you have enough people working on this brand where you're able to take a step back and look at the, the broader market? But if you're moving to the next shiny object, uh, I think that's where there's a danger, right? If, if you haven't truly, you know, have this one brand on autopilot where it's just, you know, printing money and growing and you've got a nice team behind it, but you're already moving on to the next thing, uh, you, you, you could be spreading yourself thin, right? And so what we want to do is say, okay, why, why are we moving on? You know, have we tapped out this opportunity? Uh, do we, do we feel that uh, we or, or, or have we just succeeded here? We know how to do this business. There's still opportunity to grow, but we want to start up this other brand to keep it fun and, and to keep adding uh, to, to make it fresh. But there's a lot of work to build a strong brand. And, and so I think to add that portfolio of brands, uh, you, you really have to have the, the time. You've got to have the, the team and, and the knowledge. If, if you didn't learn anything with the first brand, then it's not really successful. You know, what's going to change in the second brand? Um, maybe maybe you just picked the wrong market. Maybe you tried to build a brand around an audience that, that didn't exist, and so that would make sense to uh, to find a more successful brand to start. But but I would I would caution to you know fully utilize the first brand that you've created first, and and make a conscious decision while you're moving on. A possible exception to this rule might be if there's a dramatic shift in the market, such as a recession, and a business needs to quickly pivot to stay afloat. But even then, Bayer says companies need to honestly assess if their brands or portfolios are recession-proof or not before making any moves. I think this is not a challenge we can necessarily answer for ourselves because we're too close to the business. Uh, we, we, we can make excuses for somebody needing our product uh, during a recession or during a pandemic when in, actually you know, they, it's not needed at that point or, or it can be cut from the budget. And so having that honest assessment can, can help us understand how to take the, the brand and the product uh, forward. So, for example, if you're in an industry that is not necessary uh, during this time, how can, you, how can you pivot just slightly or maybe add that other brand? So, for example, packaged foods, you know, while they're convenient, come at a charge we all know is, is a markup, right? And so if you have a packaged food um, business where, where you're putting together different different items for somebody to, to easily cook at home, that could easily be something that's cut from the budget. But you could take that same knowledge and that same ability to package uh, items to make things easier and instead move to packaging spices or dressings or sauces 
that people can use to then cook at home, right? And so it's a way to keep that business alive during a difficult time where you're looking to kind of pivot, maybe add a couple SKUs or brands that can be used later uh, when we come out of this, uh, but it also uh, allows you the ability to make some revenue now. Once a business accurately matches a brand to a consumer, buyer says they need to ensure that the brand and their brand identities accurately and effectively communicate that connection and that they're distinct from the competition. What we find is that a lot of us, when we start a business, are just anxious to start offering the product, anxious to start getting feedback, anxious to start doing the thing that, you know, we, we were probably enjoying before, right? And so if, if you got into making a coffee brand, it's probably because you were home roasting and, and it was just a natural progression that you thought, hey, this would be fun to run a business here. And so our early branding is often very chaotic. Uh, our, our, our visuals are chaotic. The messaging is chaotic. Who we're talking to is unclear. You know, what we've kind of dialed in is the service. We know how to make the product. But all of the other aspects of the company are, are, are disconnected and confusing. We're trying to figure them out. After those first couple of years, we start to see certain patterns, right? We start to see which people reorder. Of course, your parents are going to order, you know, from you. But do they reorder, right? These are the questions that we're trying to find out. Because when you, when you start to look at that, that audience and who's reordering, who's talking about it with their friends, you know, where does 80% of your revenue come from? Once you can start answering those questions, then you can start the branding process, uh, sometimes for the first time, or it could be a rebrand where you're looking at, you know, the messaging that you're, you're currently saying and getting that more aligned. So a brand is every single touch point somebody has with your company, regardless if you're shaping that, that conversation or not. It's every touch point that somebody has with your company uh, they're creating an opinion, right, about your level of service, about your level of, of quality, right? So every touch point could be the response for phone and email customer support. It could be the quality of your product. It could be the unboxing experience of that product. It could be the ease of canceling uh, an auto shipment or the ease of reordering when you need it. Uh, these are all part of the brand. And so it's, it's, Literally every touch point that somebody has, they're creating a positive or negative experience. Your brand identity is everything visual about the company. So this is your logo, your website, the style of your font that you're using, the colors that you choose to use in your marketing. Uh, this is everything visual that you can see about this brand. Packaging, certainly, uh, is part of your brand identity. And so when we talk about the rebranding, you know, we're, we're talking about both the messaging of the company, the audience, how we respond. You know, that's part of the branding side. And we're also talking about the refreshing the visual identity, the brand identity, right? And so this is also part of where we look at the logo and say, okay, is this, is this communicating to this audience that I've identified? Does it look custom? A lot of challenges that we see at CrowdSpring are, you know, logos that are, are, are generated through uh, artificial intelligence, and I'm using air quotes there because artificial intelligence, you know, isn't quite there yet to create uh, custom design. And so what you get is really just stock photography uh, mashed together. And so consumers can see that. They can see laziness in the product. They can see something that's not custom. 
And so when we talk about refreshing the brand identity, what we're looking for is to create something truly custom, truly unique, so that when somebody sees this symbol for your company, your product, they immediately think of you. They're not confused about somebody else. Um, you know, we, we see a lot of this in industries, uh, offline industries like, like dental and lawyers and real estate. When I say those industries and I ask you to think about the visuals behind those, you can immediately think of a lot of generic symbols, you know, a tooth for a dental office. The problem is, is that logo is not building any, any memorabilia, uh, anything memorable about that company because it's sharing that same image with thousands of other competitors. And so you want to make sure that your visual identity stands out and it talks to this specific group that you've identified through this branding exercise. And so when we talk about branding and rebranding and, and uh, refreshing the visual identity, we're doing that in the context of, of not just trying to create something that looks fresh or new. We're trying to do this in a way where we're speaking to a very specific audience. So, for example, if you're talking to an affluent audience with your product, uh, you're, you're using very specific color palettes, things like black and, and, and gold. Uh, if you're talking uh, to an audience concerned about the environment, you know the colors that you're using, you know, more of the earth tones and the greens. If you're trying to build trust, you're using blues, right? And so there's very specific colors and then fonts and, and styles that accompany these types of, of people that we're trying to attract. Just as essential as personalizing a brand's identity is personalizing marketing to appeal to consumers who increasingly want bespoke products, even if they don't want to pay bespoke prices. Buyer explains there are several strategies for scaling personalization that don't break the bank. I think Coca-Cola is probably the prime example because it's been running for a while and, and it's obvious to all of us where, you know, they used a few hundred generic names uh, to place on uh, their, their, their bottles, their cans, to say this Coke is for Elizabeth, this Coke is for Jason. And while the consumer knows, we know it's, you know, there's, there's millions with, with our name, uh, that, that it feels more personal. Now, now, this works in a way for Coke because, uh, you know, it's a big brand. We want to hold this iconic you know, logo in our hands that also has our name on the can, right? And so there's something special about that because of the the brand equity, the brand value that comes from that. But but how can we take that same example and, and use it, uh, you know, without all of that brand recognition? You know, maybe you're you're running you know Joe's Soap Company where you don't have that that same type of of brand equity. You know the Digital printing is a lot cheaper now, uh, but consumers are still excited by this. You know, if you, if you write, you know, this soap specifically made for Jason Beyer, you know, where it actually has, you know, the person's name on that. That's a, that's a small cost. On a, on a bigger example, again, with more of a well-known brand is what Nutella did with their, with their packaging. And what they did was they created, uh, random designs for their, bottles and, and limited it to, you know, just one or a couple for each design. Now, these designs were just geometric shapes and random, but it created a conversation. It created a little bit of buzz and kind of a boring, you know, business and industry that was not innovating, right? They had a successful product, but, but they're not creating new products regularly. And so this was a small way for them to say, you know, look, buy a Nutella bottle today because we're only creating 5,000 designs and they're each unique. 
And it, it just is one little push to say, okay, let me purchase this over, you know, the, the Walmart brand of Nutella or the off-brand of Nutella. Bayer explains that personalization isn't limited to packaging. Companies can also deliver unique experiences through unboxing of a product, which can range from purely functional to including added touches that surprise and delight consumers so that they keep coming back. You know, when you, when you order from Amazon or Walmart, you just expect the package to show up, you know, in a generic-looking box, and your item is thrown in there, maybe with a little bubble wrap. And it's, it's a very uh, transactional experience. There's not a lot of emotion. But compare that to other products where uh, we're opening an Apple product, right, where there's a presentation. They've actually gone through to design, you know, what are you going to see first and second? You know, how is the product positioned? Does it give you a wow moment, a wow factor, excitement of the product, right? And so this is a way where, especially direct-to-consumer customers, you know, if I'm ordering a big brand Colgate toothpaste, it's coming from Amazon and it's getting thrown in the box, right, very unceremoniously. But if I'm ordering from a direct-to-consumer company that say, you know, a toothpaste that does, you know, the same job, uh, there's a lot more ability to create excitement around the product, uh, something that you would not have expected before, right? And so when you order uh, native deodorant, you know, the, the product is, is, you know, not just thrown in the box. It's got a little bit of a presentation that might have a sticker in there. Um, the, you know, the different products that you have, you want to make sure that they're presented nicely and that the packaging um, is easy, you know, so it's easy to open. You don't want to create frustration uh, in the packaging. It's, it's a, you might be excited for the product and then you try and get into it and now you're frustrated and, and you want to limit these feelings of frustration, anger, concern uh, when somebody is handling your product. So thinking about your, your product and designing it in a way where it's, you know, not going not gonna to be frustrating to open, that it's easy to use, um, you know, co- comes into play. I think about one of the designs we did for uh, a company called World's Best Tweezers. They sell a $20 tweezer. It's worth every penny, but their packaging looked like it was a $2 tweezer, something more generic, something that, uh, that you, would, you would find at a dollar store shelf. And the thing about the tweezer is much like most products, the $20 tweezer looked just like the $2 tweezer. All of the technology was in the fact that the tweezers would come together so closely. Literally, all of the technology you couldn't see. It was microscopic because that's the difference between a tweezer that works well at $20 and one that is useless at $2. However, their packaging looked like a $2 tweezer. It looked generic and basic and plain and ugly. And so what they came to CrowdSpring for was to say, okay, how can we design something that creates some emotion that, that lets somebody know, you know, this tweezer is worth $20 so that when they hold that packaging, they feel like they made a good decision, right? If they're holding it in a store, they're excited for it. They feel like, okay, this is finally going to be the tweezer that works. And if they're getting it in the mail, they're not feeling a sense of regret. You know, wow, did I just get, uh, get duped into buying a $20 tweezer because it shows up in, in dollar store packaging, right? And so the packaging quality that we choose to use really impacts how people think about our brand. 
Successfully pulling off personalization without losing a brand's identity can be a challenge. As can creating branding identities that accurately represent a company, appeal to consumers, stand out on shelf, and come in under budget. But this is where Buyer says that CrowdSpring really shines. So CrowdSpring has a, a, it's described as a fun model. So we're not an agency. You pay a flat rate with a 100% money-back guarantee to get dozens of different custom designs back. And so you're able to see a variety of different uh, ways you could present your brand. You can give unlimited feedback to these designs and iterations. And then you have a design at the end that you likely never thought of because for that one price, you're not working with one designer. You're working with dozens. You're getting dozens of different ideas that are all completely custom. And so you're able to see how the brand could be positioned in a variety of different ways. And so this goes back to our idea of, you know, once you know uh, who your audience is, you want to be able to communicate to them effectively, and that's best done visually. Buyer also notes that the branding process doesn't need to be overwhelming because it doesn't need to be all done at once. Maybe we're not ready to overhaul our packaging or our logo, although I will say you don't want to wait too long, right? There's some steps you can take in the interim, right, that allow you to start moving this branding process forward or start experimenting. One that we find that is popular and very easy to do is a custom illustration project. And this is where you're able to communicate a hard-to-understand concept or communicate your value proposition, why your toothpaste is better, why your soap is better. And you can do this in a very custom way. A custom illustration doesn't use the standard stock imagery that uh, most people are using. It's designed specific for your business. So think about, you know, some of the largest brands and what their visuals look like. There's a style that matches. And so when you're thinking about that unboxing experience, you're thinking about, you know, how do you position your instructions or your value proposition or your thank you? These can all be done through custom illustration projects. And then as you start moving forward, you can say, okay, let's, let's think about, you know, the brand itself. Do we need to change the name? We've rebranded the names of products and companies where you get dozens of different names and, and different styles that you're able to give feedback on. And this is a way to be able to stand out as well, thinking about your, your name and then moving forward with more of the visual brand identities, things like the packaging and, and, the, and the products. This is, this is a process. The branding process takes time. Uh, it takes a lot of questions. Uh, it takes iterations and testing. So, you know, it's helpful to to start testing messaging, to test audiences, and be prepared to, to make changes, right? I think where we seize up and, and feel, uh, feel anxious is when we think about redesigning logos and packaging and names. Uh, but there's a lot of ways where we can just start having conversations with customers, start to understand, you know, who they are, and start to make little changes. Change how you communicate in an email. Change how you communicate on your website just in the header, you know, change that first sentence and and see how that uh, improves your interaction with your clients. And then start to push forward in some of these bigger changes where you're really going to see movement for the brand when you're talking about all of the visuals that can be uh, more dialed in for your specific audience. If this still sounds overwhelming to you, don't worry, you're not alone which is why Buyer's at Crowdspring often starts with a brand identity review that includes actionable feedback and strategies for improving sales and which is completely free. 
To learn more about this, buyers as companies simply need to visit crowdspring.com. With that, we've come to the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you'll join me again for a future installment. And to help you remember, I encourage you to subscribe. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive, profitable, and safe week. Mm